Greetings all and welcome to the Everyday Hope Podcast. I appreciate you joining me again. In our last episode, we talked about the question why and the real struggle of living through tough times and suffering and making sense of why God sometimes allows that stuff to happen. It's an issue that affects just about everyone because, look, there's no shortage of chaos and carnage in this world, especially now. I remember the end of 2019. It was not a great year for me or for a lot of folks I know. And we all kept saying, just wait until next year. 2020 is going to be awesome. Um, yeah, not so much. 2020 is Hoover Inc., right? I mean, we're all living through chaos and suffering. Now, I want to continue on this theme of living through tough times. If you want to read a book of the Bible that deals with this topic, you have two really good choices. Job, which I absolutely love, is right on point and deals mostly with faith and what true faith looks like in these trying times. Revelation, on the other hand, is a victory song. It's about the promises we have for victory and vindication in spite of suffering, and we need a little of that right now. So in this episode, we're going to start a series on the book of Revelation. Now look, I know what you're thinking. Revelation is hard. But let me say two things about it. First, we're not going to do what I think of as a typical study on Revelation. I hope this will be a little more practical and a little more accessible. And second, you got to know that none of this is my fault. I have a very good friend who asked specifically that I, and I'm quoting now, do a podcast on Revelation. So Tori, this is for you. Now let me lay down only one ground rule. A lot of people come to a book or passage of scripture already knowing what they're going to make it say. It's not a great way to study. And with Revelation, there are some strong and emotional ideas about what this book says. My only rule is that we just not do that. We're just going to lay down our preconceptions about the book and simply listen to what it says. And then we can see if what it says is helpful. With me? You do that for me, and I'll do my best not to stir you wrong. Now, before we get into this, I need to get something off my chest. My wife hates The Lord of the Rings. She just does not like it at all. She doesn't like the books. She doesn't like the movies. It's a sickness, really, and I pray for her soul. I'm sure we all know somebody who has this disease and who needs to be forgiven by Jesus. The main reason she doesn't like it, though, is a practical one. There are just too many names and too many characters to keep track of. Tolkien created an entire world with its own history and myths and legends, and you really have to keep track of a lot of stuff. And as a result, my wife makes up her own names for things. She calls the second movie The Twin Towers, and the location of the big battle scene, Hell's Kitchen, and the main elf character, Legoland. By the way, if you don't know what these things refer to, I will pray for you. So look, I think a lot of people have that same problem with the book of Revelation. There are a lot of characters and names and symbols to keep track of. The four horsemen, the dragon with the seven heads and ten horns, the beast with the ten horns and seven heads, the second beast with two horns, the four living creatures, the twenty-four elders, the hundred and forty-four thousand sealed ones, the woman with the crown with twelve stars, the great harlot, and on and on it goes. How are we supposed to keep track of all this? What does all the imagery mean? What is John trying to tell us? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire John to write all this down in the first place? But here's a what if. What if we can hear the real message of victory in this book without memorizing all the characters? What if I don't have to have a complete grasp of every image John used to get the meaning from this, right? And that sounds easier. Let's, let's do that. 
So we're going to start by easing into it today. I just want to start by setting some context for Revelation. And what I mean by that is that if we understand some of the things about this book, what kind of book it is and what the author did and did not intend, it'll make it easier for us to hear what it's trying to say. So how do we do that? Well, maybe we should start with the stuffed shirts. The stuffed shirts have come up with the official four theories of how to interpret the chronology and imagery of Revelation. And look, I don't care if you remember everything about these theories, but I do think that knowing the basics of these four will help with the what the heck am I reading questions as we go through the difficult imagery in Revelation. So, feet on the ground. How do we understand the chronology and imagery of this book? The first theory is kind of a past tense point of view and assumes everything that happens in Revelation happened in our past during the period of the Roman Empire. There are no predictions of future events. Now, I don't believe this theory for some obvious reasons, not the least of which is that the last few chapters of the book point to the fulfillment of God's plan in the end times. That definitely lies in our future. So I don't follow this theory. The second theory is a future tense point of view, which says that beginning with chapter four, all of the events of Revelation are events in our future. It's all end time stuff. I also don't agree with this theory. It's clear that a lot of the images have to do with events in the present or near future of John's first readers, people that lived when John lived. And that stuff definitely happened in our past. So I don't follow this theory either. The third theory says that Revelation actually describes the whole history of the church from the time of the disciples and apostles of Jesus until the fulfillment of God's plan for the end times. That means that some of the stuff happened in our past and some in our future. I think this idea makes a lot more sense, and I like it a lot more than the first two. The last theory teaches that Revelation does not depict actual events, but instead is a symbolic depiction of spiritual warfare between good and evil. Now, I don't believe that all of this stuff is just symbolic. There's too much real stuff in Revelation, both for John's time and for our future. So I can't say I follow this theory completely. However, the concept of spiritual warfare in which the forces of good battle the forces of evil, yeah, that's definitely a prominent theme in this book. There's no denying it. In many ways, this book is a word of encouragement to suffering Christians, reminding them that in that cosmic battle, God wins. His plan is being worked out even now, even in the midst of chaos, which means the idea of spiritual warfare is essential to understanding Revelation. So I guess I'm a cross between the last two theories. I don't believe all of it already happened. I don't believe all of it lies ahead. I believe the imagery depicts the spiritual warfare that takes place throughout the history of the church and God's plan for bringing it all to fulfillment. And I think that'll be obvious as we go through the book. Now, one of my pet peeves is that people often read books of the Bible without thinking about what kind of thing they're reading. Think about it this way. You don't read every document the same way, do you? If you had a novel, a newspaper, an installation manual, and a history book, you wouldn't read them all the same way. You wouldn't be expecting the same things from them, and you wouldn't have the same filters applied as you read. You'd expect instruction from the manual, facts from the newspaper, illusion and fantasy from the novel, and chronological history from the textbook. Now imagine the danger of reading the novel the same way you read the newspaper. See, understanding genre matters. What is the thing we're reading? What's its purpose? What's it trying to accomplish? All of this gives us an interpretational foundation as we read. When it comes to Revelation, figuring out the genre 
it's complicated. I mean, we don't write like this. We don't have a lot of documents like this. The whole, the whole style is foreign to our basic way of looking at the world. So we need to understand its genre so we can figure out what it's trying to do. So what kind of document is Revelation? Well, Revelation is an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circular letter. Wait, what? Yeah, that was a mouthful. But if we break it down, you'll see that this document marries multiple forms of literature. Prophecy, apocalyptic literature, and epistle. So, let's talk about each one. Let's start with prophecy. It's important to remember that when we're talking about the Bible, the word prophecy does not mean predicting the future. That's a very modern definition. In Hebrew writing, prophecy has always been a message from God to his people. Now, that message often contains promises about the future, such and such a thing will happen. But the true task of prophecy is not predicting the future. It's delivering a message from God to God's people. Now, Revelation kind of has a foot in both the Old and the New Testament. It's indebted both to the Old Testament Hebrew prophecy as well as New Testament Christian prophecy. But that really shouldn't surprise us since the two are so intimately connected. For John, being a Christian prophet was a continuation of the old Hebrew prophetic tradition. John obviously understands himself as a Christian prophet like John the Baptist, declaring the imminent presence of the Messiah, but also sees himself standing in the line of Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Jeremiah. With me? By the way, if you want to do a little homework, it might not be a bad idea to read at least Ezekiel 1 through 3 and Daniel 7 through 12 to see what I mean. So this book is a book of prophecy. In fact, it says so itself. Listen to Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. In other words, God gave John a message to give God's people. With me? This is prophecy. It intends to deliver a message from God to God's people, and we should strive to hear that message. And while we haven't yet looked at what that message is, we certainly know what that message is not. Jesus told us we would not know the day or the hour when the end times would occur. That's Matthew 24, 36. He told us that even he didn't know. Only the Father knows. So whatever the future message is, it is not intended to give us a complete chronological breakdown of the literal future events that would occur at the end times. I believe that when we finish this journey through Revelation, we'll find that the true prophetic message of Revelation is this. In times of turmoil, struggle, and suffering, we can know that the final victory has already been won by God in Jesus Christ. We must hold on and keep the faith, refusing to compromise the gospel in the face of opposition. And I think you'll agree that that message is important today, as it was 2,000 years ago. Now, this prophecy is apocalyptic in nature, which accounts for a lot of the confusion over interpretation. But what the heck is apocalyptic literature? Well, let's go back to Revelation 1.1, which says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. So, in English, the first word of this passage is the. But in the original Greek, the first word, actually the first word of the entire book, is apocalypsis. Apocalypse. This is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Now, the English word apocalypse has taken on a rather dark and scary meaning since the Middle Ages, but the original Greek word meant a laying bare, or a disclosing of the truth. So this word is rightly translated as revelation, because apocalypse is a revealing of the truth. With me? 
It is Revelation. Now, John's Apocalypse is primarily concerned with eschatological judgment and salvation, which isn't strange at all. Judgment and salvation are almost always at the center of God's message to his people. So, what we have here is a prophecy that is apocalyptic in nature, while those apocalyptic concerns are primarily prophetic. And that means that we can't divorce the two genres and interpret Revelation strictly as apocalypse or prophecy. It is an apocalyptic prophecy, a message from God to God's people revealing the truth about judgment and salvation. It's cool, right? So, how does Revelation do that? Well, John is taken out of this world and into heaven. But the purpose is not so that John can gain a view of heaven. It's so that he can gain a heavenly perspective on earth. And that perspective provides a new understanding of God's purpose in our concrete historical situation, whether we're talking about John's first readers or for us today. We should also note that Revelation shares the question which concerns most Jewish apocalypses. Who is Lord over the world? Now, this question was not asked lightly in John's day. The major issue of his time was suffering, but they weren't just worried about naysayers and atheists. They weren't worried about prayer in school and teaching intelligent design. They were worried about living through the week. They were worried about being tortured to death, right? Nevertheless, the core problem of their world is still a core problem of ours. The righteous suffer while the evil seem to flourish. We struggle with the apparent unfairness of the world. So, Revelation gives the same answer to those folks back then as it does for folks living now. An answer which is the central theme of Revelation. No matter how it looks, God is in charge. He has had a plan since before he laid the foundation of the earth. There is a victory which stands in our future, a victory in which God's plan is brought to fulfillment and the righteous are vindicated while the evil are vanquished. Now, the third aspect of the genre is essential. Listen to verses four to five. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Did you hear it? While a lot of folks are scrambling to find hidden meaning in the description of Jesus as the firstborn of the dead, they miss the obvious and important fact. Maybe this will help you. Here's how Ephesians starts. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's how Philippians starts. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's how Colossians starts. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And here's how 1 Timothy starts. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my loyal child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hear it now? Hear how similar Revelation 1, 4-5 sounds to the opening of just about every letter in the New Testament? It's spot on. What I'm getting at is that Revelation is a letter. All of this apocalyptic prophecy is done in the form of a circular letter. There's no mistaking it. Unfortunately, 
Many interpreters want to separate the first three chapters from the rest of the book. But the fact is, chapters 2 and 3 form the initial words to the seven churches, words which continue through the rest of Revelation. The entire book is that letter. So, how do you read a letter? Well, we're reading correspondence from one person to a specific collection of people. And while the Holy Spirit was surely thinking of us today as he was inspiring John with his vision, there was still an audience in John's mind, the church of his time. We can't disregard them. What John wrote, he wrote to them, not exclusively, but to them. And so there must be meaning for them, right? We can't interpret this letter in a way that would be completely meaningless to them. So we need to try to hear this the way they would have heard it. So as we think about Revelation, we must keep its context in mind. It's an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a circular letter. In other words, John is given a revealing of the truth about suffering and redemption. So he writes a letter of hope to suffering people, exhorting them to keep the faith in a time of despair. It is a call to the church to hold on, to withstand, not to give in, not to lose hope, not to be fooled, and not to lose faith. Wow. If this is what Revelation really is about, what could be better at a time like this, right? People are suffering. Bad things happen to good people, while bad people seem to get away with stuff. And all the time we ask why. We shout it to the heavens, hoping God will tell us what the heck is going on, right? And here's a book which at least promises to tell us that while things seem to be going down the toilet, God really is in control, and there's victory in our future. I mean... I could use a little of that right now. So look, I don't care if you think you're a premillennialist or a postmillennialist or an amillennialist, and I don't care if you have no idea what any of those words mean. We're not going to come to Scripture already knowing what we wanted to say. We need to let it speak to us so that we can hear this great message of victory, a message I think we could all use right now. Are you in? Okay, I want to pray for you all right now. And as always, please remember, if you're driving, keep your eyes on the road, right? If you're watching the kids by the pool or handling a test tube of a deadly virus or whatever, keep your eyes on what you're doing. Be safe. God can hear our prayers even if our eyes are open, right? Just let your hearts pray with me now. Lord, I thank you for this great victory letter you have sent to us. We want to hear you speak, Lord. We want to hear about your victory. More than that, we want to experience it. Protect us in these tough times. Guard us, surround us, comfort us, and keep us safe. Heal the hearts that are suffering. Uplift the hearts that are low. Strengthen the hearts that are weary. For we are yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so that's it for this episode. We'll be back next Sunday with a look at the first of the seven churches. In the meantime, I'll be posting a bonus episode with a full reading of Revelation chapter 1, so you can check that out if you're interested. Thanks all.